0: Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Sharon Mandur,
1: And I'm your co-host, Emily Hutchinson.
0: And we're here this week with Kevin Moore. Thanks for being here.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, Sharon.
0: Kevin, tell us a little bit about what you do and, uh, and about yourself.
2: Yeah, so I'm a year PhD candidate in uh, medical biophysics. So my research uh, is centered on blood flow, but a lot, both of you and uh, a lot of our audience might know me in my SOGS role as a vice president academic.
1: And so how did you get into blood flow as a PhD? Medical biophysics sounds really interesting. Maybe you could tell us a bit about what medical biophysics is and then get into uh, how you chose blood flow.
2: Yeah, that's a, a great question. So biophysics is kind of exactly as it sounds. We're looking at the physics of biology. Um, a lot of biophysicists look at things like uh, medical imaging. Um, there's lots of physics uh, that goes into how an MRI works or a CT scanner work. Uh, my research is a little bit different, so I'm looking at the physics of blood flow. Um, so uh, if you ever took like a fluid dynamics course, uh, uh, that you learn that there's a lot of different mathematical equations on how fluid might flow uh, in a box uh, or how fluid might flow in a vessel. Uh, and that's exactly what my research is focused on, how, how blood flows uh, through blood vessels uh, within the human body. Uh, and then further, we're looking at uh, how different flow types um, affect uh, endothelial cells, which uh, are the uh, cells that live on the inner lining of blood vessels and how different types of flow uh, affects the health of those endothelial cells.
0: All right. so follow up on that. I was wondering what kind of, you were saying different types of flows, what kind of flows are we talking here?
2: Yes, that's a a great question and a a great starting off point. So the two major types of flow are uh, laminar and turbulent flow. Uh, So laminar flow is uh, sort of your ideal flow. It's when uh, all the fluid uh, in a pipe is all moving in the same direction um, from the beginning of the pipe to the end of the pipe. That's very simple. Disturbed or uh, turbulent flow is the type of flow that you see uh, once things get a bit messy. So you, you imagine like a, a jet in a hot tub or a, a, a fire hose uh, where the, the fluid coming out is kind of flowing and bumping into each other and it's all kind of swirling and, and going in different directions. Uh, so that's what I'm kind of sort of talking about with turbulent flow
1: this is happening inside our blood vessels. We have these different kinds of flow. And so, okay, that's my question. So I'm assuming the answer is yes, is that we do have these different types, but uh, what is the outcome of that? Does that affect human health?
2: Yeah, so uh, essentially that's where my research lies and, and you're correct, we do have some levels of turbulence in our blood vessels, but only in certain regions. So we're talking um, when an artery splits off into two arteries, Uh, to smaller arteries, the blood flow that goes into either of those arteries might get kind of jostled around by by that, what we call a bifurcation. That's when when the artery splits off into the two. Uh, So that's one scenario in which the uh, blood flow might uh, become a bit disturbed, a little bit turbulent. Uh, Another situation is uh, if you have plaque in your arteries, uh, it's no longer a nice circular uh, vessel. Uh, once it passes through that plaque, uh, it might just sort of get jostled around a bit, and then you have that disturbed blood flow. Um, now, uh, the second part of your question uh, re- pertaining to health uh, is essentially exactly what my research is. We're looking at what those health uh, outcomes might be. So, I mentioned uh, those two regions uh, where you might see some turbulence. Uh, there have been some findings that show um, that plaque will form exactly in those regions where uh, flow is a little bit disturbed. So uh, right at bifurcations is usually where you see the beginning of plaque for formation. Uh, now plaque is uh, sort of calcium or cholesterol deposits within your blood vessels that impact blood flow. Uh, so you might hear about people getting uh, uh, plaque in their in their arteries uh, due to a poor diet or uh, smoking, certain things that cause plaque um, and eventually that leads to a condition called atherosclerosis, uh, which is one of the leading causes of death in North America. Um, it's essentially uh, a great indicator of uh, the beginning of cardiovascular disease or uh, uh, any, any sort of disease to do with the heart or blood vessels. Uh, so essentially my research is looking at um, how, how do we get from turbulent blood flow to atherosclerosis? What is the actual series of events that causes plaque to develop in these regions?
0: Okay, so now I'm curious, we keep saying looking and looking and like seeing, yeah. how are you look essentially looking at this stuff? Yes,
2: yeah, so now we're getting into the actual methods of my research, which uh, uh, is pretty cool, uh, if I do say so myself, um, but it's taken a long time to get sorted out. So. The working theory right now is that endothelial cells, like I mentioned before, are the, the cells that live on the inner lining of our blood vessels, uh, are able to discern between laminar and disturbed flow. Uh, that's, that's the working theory. Uh, the next theory is that cells that are under disturbed flow send some sort of signal that make them, uh, for lack of a better term, they're sticky, they, they, they sort of collect this plaque uh, because they're sending some different signals. Uh, so my job is to figure out uh, what kind of signals are they, are they sending? Um, so to answer your question, we have something called a microfluidic device. Now this is uh, exactly as it sounds, it's a very small device that we can pass fluids into. Uh, it's a couple millimeters long and it's uh, made out of silicone. So I, I, I sort of engineer these devices uh, and then we we can actually put endothelial cells directly into this microfluidic device. Uh, they go in there and we call it seeding. They uh, basically coat the entire device. And at this point, we've, we're sort of mo- modeling a tiny artery. Um, next, we uh, can put fluid through. Uh, and depending on which jets we use within the d- device, we can either put laminar fluid or laminar flow through, or we can put disturbed flow through. Uh, or or turbulent flow. The reason I I say uh, uh, disturbed is because technically it's not turbulent flow, just based on the physical uh, uh, definition of turbulence. Um, There's a a, a little bit of nuance behind that, but I I say disturbed instead of turbulent. Uh, Mm -hmm. Anyways, we're able to uh, put in turbulent flow uh, and then pass it over these endothelial cells uh, and see how they respond.
1: And then how do they respond? Do they send those signals? Is there a way for you to like quantify what signals are being sent? Are you, how, how do you figure that out? What's the result of, of all this really amazing machinery? And I have another question. How much do you think this machine that you have costs? Because I know these things can be very expensive.
2: Okay, uh, I'll start with your first question. Um, yeah, my next job is to see how the cells respond. This is very tricky, I've been struggling with it for about two years now. (laughs) Um, These cells are made out of silicone, so so they're uh, completely transparent, which means I I can put them on a microscope and look at them uh, straight through the device. Um, And then we load them up with uh, a molecule called Fira2. All you need to know about that is that it uh, fluoresces calcium. Now, why do we care about calcium? Um, Well, those of you who have taken in cell biology know calcium is a very common second messenger molecule. And I realize I'm getting uh, a little bit technical here, but, but bear with me. Um, second messenger basically just means uh, it's indicative of signaling. So once you see calcium in the cell, you know it's sending some signal. And it really is as simple as that. Uh, cells send signals all the time. They're sending signals to other cells, they're sending signals uh, downstream. Uh, uh, within the arteries. So what I can do is then look at how much uh, calcium is in a cell. Where is it? How long is it lasting? Uh, And some of the preliminary results, this is not conclusive, but some of the preliminary results we've seen is that when cells are exposed to laminar flow, so we put nice straight flow over them, you see uh, a spike in calcium, but then it immediately drops back down within a few seconds. Uh, so you see the spike of the cell sending a signal and then saying, okay, we're in this new flow pattern and it stops sending a signal. When we put in turbulent flow, uh, the mm-hmm. cell sends the same signal, but it keeps sending that signal. The, the calcium doesn't go away. It just keeps on sending the same signal over and over again. Uh, so you can imagine it's just, it's unhappy. It just keeps sending this, the signal that's saying I'm under n- new flow. And that's because it's the cells being jostled around by uh, what we call turbulence. Imagine you're just, spraying a a jet over the cell. Um, So there's still some work to be done to connect these unique uh, signaling patterns with the actual uh, outcome of atherosclerosis. Something that we want to do is we want to um, flow uh, what what we call monocytes uh, into the uh, device. Uh, And remember earlier I said that um, cells might get sticky and uh, uh, begin to develop plaque the theory is that the cells that are explosive disturbed flow will uh, catch the monocytes and the monocytes will stick to them
1: and a monocyte sorry is just one cell monocyte monocyte,
2: uh, monocyte okay. that's a great way to of am thinking but yeah monocytes are found in our blood all the time and uh, it's been shown in other research that um, it's one of the first things that happens when plaque starts to form uh, is that monocyte start sticking sticking to them? But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Um, I want to answer your second question, which is how much are these devices do these devices cost? Uh, I'd say anywhere between like one of these devices. I'd say anywhere between three and four dollars. Uh, huh. It's actually because it's all sort of homemade, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a little petri dish, which is probably the most expensive part, it probably cost me two dollars, uh, and then the rest of it is just silicone, which um, it, it's not. The cheapest thing in the world, like could probably $50 to uh, a bottle, but I use maybe two grams of it per device. Uh, and then I pour it into a mold, which was crafted over uh, by some colleagues at Robarts. I pour it into the mold and I just stick it all together. And then uh, I put in some tubing and, and that's the device. It, it really is wow. um, just that simple. I mean, the research and development that went into creating it, which started long before I even started at Western, um, probably took lots of time and resources, but no, the device itself is, uh, uh, pretty cheap to, to create. And I, I, go through a bunch a week and sometimes I just don't like the way one looks. So I'll throw it out and start making new one. That's it's that, uh, it, those are actually fairly cheap.
1: That's reassuring. <laughs>
0: yeah. My uh, idea of what this machine is completely changed. I'm thinking of giant metal box or something.
2: That's the physics part is is me just building these devices. And it's almost like I'm engineering them. I I work in the physics building to do this. And uh, I'm just churning these things out uh, all the time. Uh, Really the limiting factor is how long it takes for the silicone itself to cure into a solid Mm. silicone. But at the end, it's just like a little kind of squishy uh, plastic device.
1: So what do your research days look like? Do you spend most of your time in a wet lab or do you do any modeling or or what else are you up to?
2: That's a great question. Um, My days are always changing. I'm always running around doing something because, so I create the devices in the physics building, like I said. um, And that's, uh, it's sort of a wet lab, but it's also like, you know, compared to real biology labs, it's not really, it's, it's just sort of like a, a little workbench that I, I work at. And yeah, there's silicone, which isn't the best thing to breathe in or anything, but other than that, it's, it's pretty relaxed. Uh, I then pick up these devices, maybe like five or six at a time, and I bring them over to Robarts, where I do work in a wet lab, but I work in a cell culture room. Um, so I'd say most of my time is spent in that cell culture room. Uh, growing cells is a lot of work. Uh, these are essentially my children Uh, how much time I put into making sure that they're alive and happy. Um, So I grow these. And then uh, on the days where I actually put them into the device, that's probably the most intensive or second most intensive part of the work Um, to actually lift the cells out of the device and put them in a suspension um, is one thing, but then to take that suspension and flow it into my device and make sure that the cells stick and make sure that there are no bubbles. uh, You'd be amazed that Bubbles are right now are the biggest thing that are standing between me and a, a dissertation. Um, <laughs> but that's that's one of the most uh, labor-intensive parts. Uh, it takes a few hours to do that, and then um, finally, on days where I actually get to image, I I will flow through uh, the Fira two that I was talking about earlier. That that molecule that lets us see calcium, um, and then I have to run literally over to the dental sciences building where the Uh, system is um, because you can't have the cells outside uh, of the incubator environment too long and I'm literally running to a different building Uh, so that's that's uh, that's the most labor-intensive part that's the trickiest part Um, and then that's kind of the gist of my experiments I do some uh, programming to uh, deal with all the images that we get uh, but for the most part I'd say 60% of my time is within the cell culture rooms. So that's sort of what my day looks like.
0: All right. I got two questions for you yeah. because you guys have been throwing out this term wet lab and I'm sitting here like, what is a wet lab? So could you explain?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, uh, fair enough. That's a good question. I don't even think about these things sometimes, but a wet lab is when you see a scientist in a white lab coat mm-hmm. uh, and they are working under a fume hood, we're probably working in a wet lab. A wet lab is anything with uh, biohazard or, or chemicals or, or stuff like that. So I, uh, I think we're containment level two, uh, which means we've got like, we've got cells and stuff, but nothing, we're not working with, with diseases or anything. Uh, I think level three uh, wet labs are where you, you'd you see like um, uh, dangerous diseases with people working with like E. coli and stuff. And then I think there's one level four wet lab in Canada, and I believe it's in Winnipeg, but I I could be wrong on that. Um, But anyways, that has nothing to do with my research. I just always think that's kind of interesting to talk about.
0: Uh, And then my follow-up question, said you had to run to the dentistry building. How long is this run?
2: It's not bad. It was much worse. Um, Okay, so if, if you're not familiar with Robarts, the hospital and dental science, they're all connected. Um, so I'm running from Robarts to Dental Science. It's nice now because there is a corridor that connects uh, Robarts and Dental Science and the hospital. It's kind of like a trifecta hallway. Um, so I'm always running through there, and that's nice because I I can just go right through there. But for the first year, maybe a year and a half of my uh, degree here, uh, that was closed because of COVID. Um, mm-hmm there was a ton of rules about who can go in and out of hospitals. So they closed off that corridor so that they could control traffic more. That was much worse because I actually had to run outside with, with a device with endothelial cells, which doesn't seem right. And I would go out in the middle of winter and it's like negative 40 and these cells were supposed to be at 37 degrees. Um, So it's better now, but I'd say that like when you actually, you, if any, anyone listening uh, works in robots or dental science, you might actually, see me jogging every once in a while and it's it's about like a i don't know three minute trek uh when i'm jogging maybe a six minute walk um but yeah that that that's one thing i wish i could change is bringing that device a little bit closer but uh or that that uh system but it's a very uh sophisticated system uh that is able to image uh, fluorescence uh calcium uh, sort of profiles so.
1: mm-hmm. So it probably uh, makes you feel even more like the cells of your children because you're like running them through the cold mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. cr- cradling them like ah my face and
2: then I forgot to mention I can't expose them to light during this time because it's fluorescence oh. imaging so I'm also while well, I've been practicing putting them in a box uh which at least solve my problems but for some reason I took me a while to think of that uh, <laughs>
1: oh, you know
2: <laughs> I, I, I had I've always been just like Cupping them in my hands and running, and then Aww. one day I thought, "Why don't I just put them in a box?" So, you know, those are the types of things that uh, they uh, give you funding for when you're doing your PhD. Is oh, put cells in a box. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Did COVID slow you down a lot? Because I, aside from the having to run outside, but did you have any restrictions on like being able to go in the lab? Did it slow down your timeline?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it actually it was actually uh, kind of setting my timeline because I began my uh, degree in September of 2020. Mm. Uh, So peak COVID, that was, that was, you know, uh, among us days when everyone was playing among us. Uh, I moved, I moved to London. Yeah. uh, Like first week of September, 2020. And I don't think I actually went into the lab in person till November and that was just because, you know, you had to get, have such special permission to be in a lab, and it wasn't, it was too hard a swing to say, oh, well, we've got this new student, can we, like, go in and get them trained, and then, like, get them practicing and stuff, it's, like, no, it's only, like, the people who are uh, doing really, really important stuff, or, like, um, are finishing up their dissertation, those were the type of people who were actually going in to uh, the lab, so I, I didn't, really going for the first time until november and then i didn't start going in regularly until i want to say like like march or april of 2021 uh so that first that first year or so was very slow because i was doing like a lot of lit review and just a lot of uh writing my proposal and stuff it was it was very slow so that definitely slowed me down but uh i like to think we're somewhat back on track now
0: Uh, So you also have another role that keeps you busy. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about that?
2: So, yeah, I'm the uh, uh, vice president academic over at SOGS. That's where a lot of our viewers might recognize my name from. Um, uh, I'm one of the five executives and I oversee a lot of the uh, committees and uh, sort of responsibilities of SOGS, uh, one of which, uh, believe it or not, is actually this. Uh, podcast, the GradCast, um, uh, which has been a a real treat, Uh, but I will say Sharon and Amelie, you are so great at uh, running things and everyone at the GradCast team, uh, that is a very hands-off approach. Uh, I just sort of agree uh, to things and approve things because uh, really it's a a well-oiled machine. Um, Some of the other things I, I oversee are the Western Research Forum, which you can look out for in March. Um, the peer advisor role, uh, which is another thing I want to plug, um, as well as a lot of the uh, boring uh, campus partner stuff, the, the Senate meetings, the, uh, the rules and regulations that uh, are super important uh, and uh, doing best to stay up on, on them. Um, uh, but yeah, that's sort of just a, kind of like an overview of my role at SOGS.
1: Yes, yeah, so Kevin gets to come to our GradCast meetings and, and hear about our committee. Uh, so I do wanna ask though, what is the time commitment that you have? Because I, you have to attend our meetings every other week and then you always seem to be in the SOGS office. So, and does that interfere at all with your research? <laughs>
2: That's a good question. Um, it's definitely it's definitely a time commitment. Um, I, I, I wouldn't wanna put a, put a number on it and say like uh, the hours I spend Uh, here and there, but it's definitely uh, taught me to improve my time management. Um, I really live and die by my calendar now, um, because I'll have certain meetings that I just can't move, uh, but then I'll also have cells to take care of. Uh, You know, sometimes I can't leave cells for more than a few hours, so I'll have to be running back and forth. So, uh, in addition to running between robots and dental science, you'll often see me running, like, between all these buildings. So, I you can either find me in dental science, robots, physics, or Middlesex. And I feel like I'm in Middlesex more often than any, any of the other buildings. Um, but that's right, I'm always in uh, the SOGS office, uh, just sort of working on stuff. Um, but I'm doing my best at uh, finding those boundaries and um, you know keeping things to, uh, uh, like I'll have SOGS days and I'll have research days. And then, uh, so today was uh, fully a SOGS day Um, I only just checked on my cells this morning, uh, but then tomorrow will be mostly, uh, research. Uh, so like I have lab meeting tomorrow and, uh, uh, hopefully some cells to image. Um, so it's just a matter of planning out my weeks strategically, uh, and, uh, you know, just doing the best that I can and being fully present in whatever role I'm doing. So when I'm in SOGS, I'm just SOGS when I'm in, when I'm in the lab, I'm just lab.
0: All right, and now I have to ask you, just in case, do you have break days?
2: Do I have break days? Do weekends count? I'd say, yeah. Uh, The unfortunate thing about the nature of my experiments is everything's on a 48 hour clock. Um, So my cells, I passage them and I need to passage them again, 48 hours later. And sorry, when I say passage them, I just mean uh, basically move them to a new dish to let them grow. so everything's 48 hours, which means I'm usually in at least for a little bit on either a Saturday or a Sunday. So if I, if I do my cell work on a Friday, I have to come in Sunday, but I usually leave those where it's just like, I'll just stop in, do what I need to do. It takes me an hour and then I'm out. Um, doing my best to find the break days when I can, and I always make the most of them, um, but it's definitely been go, go, go at least at least for the past uh, few months. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. So I understand that SOGS is uh, kind of like a little bit like political, like you're making decisions, you have committees, you're overseeing other things. Are you interested in politics in yourself, like yourself? Like, could you see yourself getting into it more uh, into policy or committees and stuff when you finish your PhD and go into your career?
2: Uh, Short answer, no. (laughs) <laughs> and maybe Stogs has taught me that uh, more, more than anything. Um, and it's it's not that uh, I don't give everything I have into the politics of the uh, of the role, but that's not what I'm in it for. Um, you know, I went through through one election, um, and that was already uh, kind of weird enough. You know, I, I, I didn't uh, wasn't interested in sort of being this uh, sort of political figure asking people to, to vote for me. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
2: it's been more of just a, a byproduct of it. And then the politics in terms of uh, liaising with campus partners, um, you can call it a politics game, but I just, I look at it as we go to these meetings and I present everything I can um, from what I'm hearing from graduate students to advocate on their behalf um, and just do my best to be heard. Um, mm-hmm. As politics games in, in terms of uh getting friendly with with uh with folks and i guess that, i think that's what people ima- imagine uh when you say politics is i'm like uh you know going behind the scenes and like uh scheming and plotting like it's game of thrones or something but it's really just it's really just uh laying everything on the table and uh, advocating for graduate students uh,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and making this uh the best sort of environment for graduate students to thrive.
1: Well put.
0: So earlier you said you wanted to shout out something called the peer advisor role. I was curious what that is because I have no idea.
2: Yeah, so that's the biggest thing uh, that I I sort of want to get out to graduate students this year. Um, The peer advisor is a free and confidential service that SOGS offers um, for students who are uh, in any sort of academic distress. So it's it's called the Peer Advisor for Academic Matters, so specifically academic. So let's say you have a disagreement with your supervisor uh, or um, uh, you have a funding dispute, or uh, let's say you fail a course or you fail a midterm or something and you need to appeal it, uh, but you don't really know how or like what the process is or you don't like feel like anyone's in your corner. Um, you can reach out to the peer advisor um, uh, through any, any, uh, for any of these inquiries, uh, you can reach a peer advisor at academic or at advisor.academic.sogs.ca, or it's on our website. Um, I was the peer advisor, uh, actually, uh, last year, so 2021, uh, that's how I joined SOGS, was I applied to be the peer advisor, um, and the students who we were able to help uh, really appreciated just having someone in their corner. And um, uh, the peer advisor is a great role because uh, they can assist you um, with navigating a Western's websites and wayfinding, or they can even accompany you to meetings as a silent support person uh, and just take notes for you um, or help you draft an email or help you draft an appeal letter. Uh, So that's just something I really wanna shout out and uh, make sure people are aware of it because I want people to use it. I want people to, uh, know that it's there for them and I don't want any graduate student to feel like they're stranded or uh, uh, don't have anyone fighting in their corner.
1: That's awesome. I didn't know about that either, but now I'm glad that I do. Uh, We're almost out of time, but I do have one quick question for you. What has been the best part of your graduate experience so far?
2: That's a great question. Um, There's been a lot, but I think the only correct answer is all the friends that I've made. You know. I mentioned earlier that I moved to London in September of 2020 um, which was tough because I didn't know anyone here and then it was it was lockdown I I I couldn't make any any friends um and then you know you go to classes and they're all virtual and you kind of try to uh, organize things with your cohort but they all kind of it's just different over Zoom um mm-hmm. but ever since sort of uh coming out of lockdown and and uh uh, being able to go to campus in person I've made so many friends and uh, that's what I'm going to remember most um, both through my program and through SOGS. SOGS is a great way to to, to meet new people and make new friends um, so it, yeah it sounds maybe a little bit corny but that's far and away the best part of, of grad school to me is just uh, all the great people uh, that have made it
0: great. That's awesome. And we're just about, we're just out of time. So I thank you for being on here, Kevin. I feel like I learned a lot about biophysics and about you and SOGS, and I'm glad. Uh, so this has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, uh, Shran Mender, and my co-host was Emily Hutchinson. We've been speaking with Kevin Moore, and this episode was produced by Emily Hutchinson. If you would like to be involved on in the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, Spotify. Thank you for listening and have a great night.